composing the, the mind, bring it to the present. to the way it is now, to the obvious conditions that, such as the body, the posture, and the experience of sitting, just the, not the idea of sitting, but the reality, the direct experience of sitting is like this. <coughs> When you when you notice the, the body in this way, reflecting on the way it is, the body is experienced. You know, you stop thinking about it. You don't you don't have to think about your body because it's here already. There's just awakening to the to the reality of its presence, the way it is. So when I do this, and I'm aware of the, usually like the pressure of sitting, the body sitting, whether the legs, the arms, hands, and just being aware of of them as experience. So this is, you know, this is uh, in Gayanupasana Satipatthana, the first foundation of mindfulness. This is very important to, because it's a very grounding practice to be with something as heavy and uh, as and as kind of solid seeming as the as the body is course it's, uh, it has more kind of seems more permanent than a thought or a memory so in doubt you know you can always you know what to do what should I practice right now sometimes people sit and they do, what should I do Anapanasati metta that but always uh, the body's always here you know it's always the way it is. And so bringing attention to that, that, that brings you to the touching earth practice. You know, you're receiving the earth in terms of receiving your own body in consciousness. Its sensations... <coughs> So in the formal meditation practice, they usually always refer to the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Now these are, you know, the basic movements that we use throughout the day and night. Well, they're sitting, standing, walking, lying down. <coughs> so they're ordinary. Uh, not We aren't seeking to develop awareness in, in highly specialized, uh, postures you can do that also but the the, the uh, importance of this is, is the ordinariness of posture not in you know standing on your head or doing something special 
just the movement of the body, standing up from sitting and starting to walk and walking, the process of lying down, it's, uh, you know, so that they connect. They aren't just isolated uh, as if sitting, standing, walking, lying down were totally separate. There's this movement, bodily movement, that you can always refer to, to the, for awareness. In fact, there's a, a teacher in Thailand that teaches just bodily movement. There's a way of connecting awareness. So it works. Also, you just use your body as a focus to the, the main focus for awareness. body needs attention too and it's uh, when we ignore when we live very much in a mental realm you know up in the brain then we we can uh, dismiss or not notice not be sensitive to the needs of our own bodies till they get till they it gets painful or too demanding you know so it's easy to to live in a to create a mental realm that we prefer. So the Gyanupasana Saripatthana is intentionally choosing the body, bringing it into uh, into awareness, consciousness, conscious, making allowing it to be a con- consciously received or received in consciousness. <clears throat> you also will feel it relax as you as you notice as you pay attention to the various parts you know you can you know one one can use uh just by thinking, you know, top of the head, uh, suddenly the awareness goes there. So just being able to scan through the body, starting from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet and the tips of the fingers. I've developed a lot of awareness around hands and fingers because so they're very sensitive and you can feel the kind of sensations of in your hands. and. Uh, if you notice when you're using your hands and fingers as a focus in awareness, the, the hands relax. You realize, you know, the hands are are made for grasping. They're holding, clinging instruments of the body. So you've got a thumb opposed to four fingers. You know, so we can we can hold on much better than, say, other animals that don't have such things. You know, so dogs can't grasp anything. 
they don't have a, a thumb opposing four fingers. You get into primates, apes and monkeys, they, they've learned to do that, got hands like we do. So, and that uh, gives us the ability to, to hold on. Now just reflecting on this, it's the holding process. A lot of tension and grasping can be felt in one's own hands, habitual grasping. So if you, if you can focus on the hands, just be aware of the, because they're quite obvious, they're, uh, not, you don't have to look at them, but just bring them into consciousness. They're very, you feel, I feel these kind of tingling sensations. It's very, uh, you know, quite easy to, to meditate upon. I find that helps to relax uh, the body also, just uh, as the hands, my hands relax, the tensions leave them, then it seems to help the the whole formation. When one can contemplate the body with just, you know, through the various parts of the body, to the sections of the body, to the whole body experience. So I contemplate the whole body as experience. I know so I have this sense of just that collecting it all together is, and just receiving the experience of my body, a, a whole thing at this moment. So the words themselves kind of give the suggestion, and then uh, when you think about it, it it does. Uh, you know, if you try to figure it out, it, you can miss the point. So this is where you trust yourself in, in the actual practice. So the kind of magic of the mind, isn't it? It always seems a little bit magical to me how, how it works. That I can just think right thumb, and, and it's in consciousness just by by thinking the, the word to myself or right hand you know it can be thumb, tip of the thumb you can get kind of too small detail or to the, the whole part the right hand or the right arm on and like this so it's a way of of uh, bringing, uh, the body seems to really uh, relax and uh, I feel, my body feels quite happy if I've done a lot of meditation on it. I mean, like it feels like the body's happy. <laughs> it has, uh, maybe it needs attention, needs to be paid attention to and received in a non-critical way. <coughs> So we tend to, you know, on the vanity side, the ego side, we, we criticize, you know, which is very cruel kind of thing to do to oneself, always, you know, looking at it and, and uh, vanity is a very cruel habit of the mind where we, we, we don't like this 
nose too big, mouth too wide, eyes too small, feet too big, <laughs> too fat, too thin, too this, too that. And then, it, and then uh, of course, this, I think, is quite a negative uh, effect on one's mind as well as, uh, you know, not, not really recognizing the body for the way it is, accepting it, allowing it to be the way it is, where we, uh, we have our own views about how we want it to be, what we want to look like. And so this is, this is a negative habit of always criticizing or complaining or judging it in some way. So in healing practices, you know, it also helps to heal the body and it's, when it gets pain or tensions or illnesses. And this kind of practice is, helps to relax in the process of healing. The body knows, you know, has, has its own intelligence and can heal itself if you allow it. But if your desires are always getting in the way, like wanting to get rid of illness and, and being worried and resenting being sick or having pain, then the, you're creating negative conditions which slow down the process of healing. So in this satipatthana, it is the foundation of mindfulness. You know, it's it's basic. It's kind of the, it's obvious. It's not subtle. <clears throat> so it's a, always a good reference. Something you can always use. Sometimes we we have, you know, we we have guilt or aversion to our own bodies or whatever, and these identity with it. The uh, in a society like modern societies, uh, you know, not very profound. It doesn't look very deeply in things. So it's very cosmetic. You know what you look like modern fashion, uh, standards of beauty dictated uh, by businesses and so forth are, you know, there's a very superficial, very shallow ways of looking at the, the human body. But we are influenced by them. And of course the desire to be attractive and attract others and 
look good and that is is natural desire to us it's not that to be bound to that desire to be enslaved by it and creating or the, the kind of continuous negativity that comes through through never being content, never fully accepting experience as it is. So with uh, meditation on the body, it's accepting the body as it is. It's making, it's not conditional, you know, it's not trying to make it into what you want or what you would like but receiving it in its whatever way it is at this moment. So the metta practice, this metta is this unconditioned receptivity. It's, it's making no conditions, no demands directed towards your own body. It's not demanding anything from it or judging it, criticizing, just rec- receiving it as it is, the pain, the, the uh, pleasant side, the unpleasant side, whatever, it, it is not, it's not uh, preferring, but allowing. I remember when I first, you know, started this scanning style, sweeping, you know, the neutral sensation. I found, you know, one that one was so, I was always looking for extreme kind of sensation in the body, like tension or pain or tingling or itching or anything that that had some kind of, you know, obvious sensation that was easy to focus on. Neutral sensation is so easy to, to not notice. So I did a lot of because it's intentional, you have to choose to look at it. And notice the way your clothes touch your skin on your right arm or the 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 touching of one hand on the other that has no neither is neither pleasant nor painful. And so it, it's it's like then awareness is your rather than just waiting for extreme sensation to bring attention, you're paying attention to parts of your body that you would never notice because unless they get they have some strong sensation in them. And you know, it's like mindfulness then, isn't it? It's not just awareness of extreme, but of, you know, of pleasure and pain, but of neutral. They in the Vedananupasana feeling. You've got Sukha, Tukha, Atukha, Matsukha, Vedana. So Sukha, Vedana, Atukha, Vedana is quite obvious, but Atukha, Matsukha, Vedana you pay attention to it. You know, you, it's not going to make you pay attention. Like pain forces you to pay attention to it, doesn't it? 
But a tukka matsuka vedana, you can totally ignore, never notice, because it makes no demand, doesn't stand out. <clears throat> so in learning to to deal with vedana, you know, you're really noticing subtle sensation. Uh, as a physical or bodily sensation. When with pain, physical pain or took away the you know, there's such a desire to get rid of it, an annoyance with it. Uh, uh, you know, the, when the when we're having those kind of sensations in the body, there is a, a you know reaction. We react to that. We either try to ignore it, or try to get rid of it. Or if we feel, you know, if we're sitting, we can feel we have to endure it, but we're really, you know, it's, it's still a very negative state of kind of hoping hoping it'll go wanting it to disappear so it's I've learned a lot just exploring uh, pain in the body you know either going directly to it just you can be aware of it it's it's a kind of vibration and if you're not caught, if you're not developing aversion to it and reacting to it, trying to get rid of it, then that, you know, you can become quite concentrated on the sensation of uh, the vibration of pain. But the, the trying to move away from it is, is the natural, you know, it's not not saying that that's something you shouldn't be doing, but but the, in meditation you're noticing the way things are. You le- one can learn a lot from physical discomfort, physical pain, because there's a lot of fear around it and resentment and reactivity, just habitual ways of reacting to it that are quite normal. <clears throat> Certainly not seeking pain is you know one doesn't is. The Buddha didn't establish uh, asceticism, like deliberately torturing yourself or causing pain to yourself. He didn't recommend Atakilamatanu Yoko as a path. Because you don't, you know, we have enough discomfort and painful feelings, we don't have to. Um, Seek to increase it. Just whatever, whatever you you experience normally is enough to learn from. So I found, you know, I tell the story when I had years ago at Chitters before coming to Amavati. Somebody, I have my my two front teeth, upper teeth. Uh, when I was in the Navy, they, they were broken, so I had to have them capped 
in the, when I was in the Navy, that was 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 50 years ago. And so, uh, <coughs> and the caps became, started falling off when I was at Chitters, so somebody offered to to uh, have them redone with nice porcelain caps, you know, really good quality. They went to a dentist in Midhurst, and uh, and of course he had to drill all around the roots of the two front teeth. <laughs> and so, they, you know, exposing all these nerves on the two front teeth. And so I determined to not take any anesthetic. So I I lay in the dental chair and they, one of these things where they you lie on your you know you lie down and look up at the ceiling. There are pictures of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, and I and the dentist and the dental nurse were were surprised that I didn't want to have any any kind of injections to stop the feeling of pain. I just wanted to test it out, you know. Staying with pain and with a sound of silence. So, uh, you know, I could just by staying with that, you know, just staying with the sensation and the sound of silence, I could endure the, the pain. And you know what that is like in a dentist, you know, and they it's quite uh, unpleasant sensation. So it was it was an experiment just to see how to you know what to do in uh, in something that before I would have you know uh, really avoided you know I would have insisted on an, an injection. <clears throat> so I think it was about three days the process took and then after the first day I went back to Chithurst and then <clears throat> I had to go the next day and I noticed, you know, something about my body didn't want to go. <laughs> I had to force it. <laughs> I began to see uh, the body isn't really self. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I knew, I knew what I had to do. I wanted them capped, you know. I want to get it through. So there was certainly, you know, on a sense of me wanting this me determining not to have the anesthetic but I found I kind of like uh, there's a kind of, I felt this kind of feeling of body not wanting to to go there again to the to the dentist however now I I just if I have a feeling that I have this injection <laughs> But I mean, when one is just 
testing out things, you know, to see how to deal with things that the one doesn't like or or reacts to in negative ways. Just to use that as a focus. Give it special attention to learn from it. <coughs> but it, you know, it's a contemplation of pain, physical pain. is One can either go to it, you know, concentrate on the sensation where the thinking process stops. Because the thinking process, you know, if you start thinking about pain, you, you know, I, I get these feelings, but I can't stand it, it's terrible, I, too much. I'm adding something to it. And that's, the very thought of I can't stand it is the real, is the dukkha. I began to see that the real suffering is what I create. I can't stand it, it's too much, I'm so, you know, it's horrible. Or even before you go to the dentist, you know, thinking, oh, I don't want to go there, it's too, you know. This is, this is the dukkha that, that I create. Then the dukkha of the physical sensation, that's bearable. I began to notice, I can bear I can endure, uh, you know, there's ability to endure, bear with physical pain and distress. But when it comes to thinking about it, then I can't bear it. It's, I can't stand it, it's too much. This, this of course limits me. So, noticing the difference, you know, between the way it is, the sensation of pain and the aversion to pain. The sensation of pain is natural when the conditions for pain arise, you know, and, and the, then, the, then this is what you get. The natural sensation. <clears throat> and then the dukkha that the Buddha is pointing to in the in the uh, first noble truth is uh, not wanting this, you know, wanting, fearing it, dreading it. I can't stand it. This this kind of thinking, I, I don't want it. So, the, the, but we create these. These is created through thought. I just can't stand it. I don't like it. I don't want it. This uh, vipavadanha is uh, what we create. So through through uh, meditation, you begin to see the difference. The, the clear there's a very you know obviously a big gap between the way it is and and what I create onto the way it is out of ignorance. So in, you know, in freeing the mind from dukkha, it doesn't mean we don't ever have pain or sickness or any of these things, you know. These are natural conditions, you know, that come. We don't, 
you know, conditions for disease or pain, hunger and so forth. These these are not our creation. <clears throat> but what we what we create is this dunha and attached to this dunha then it this is where we can let go, you know, free the mind. So noticing that this realm that we live in is a sense realm. Pain is a part of the experience, isn't it? If we were insensitive, we wouldn't feel pain. You know, it's obvious. Uh, so sometimes we, you know, try to make ourselves insensitive. And I remember, you know, my generation in the in the in the states, where men were supposed to be insensitive. You're brought up to not, you're not supposed to feel things. You know, you're not to be frightened. Real man's not frightened. Boys don't cry. We're tough. You know, we don't feel anything. We don't cry and we, we're really, you know, like, we're trying to make ourselves totally insensitive was the ideal of manhood. <clears throat> So there is always this pretense trying to, you know, if if you if somebody said you're too sensitive, it was like, you know, like an insult, <clears throat> like you're weak. Being sensitive, you know, the idea of being sensitive was considered a weakness for men. So you learn to suppress things and act roles and you know, totally delude yourself, because this is a sense realm. You know, this is a sensitive form we're we're experiencing right now. This is the way it is. Nothing to do with what I want or anything. It's just it's that nature. It's natural. So why is there pain and and disease and ideally we think we shouldn't be. We should conquer all disease and death and pain. We want a society where you never get old and you never get sick and you never die. Where all these things are conquered. We have this idea of conquering death and disease. And back in the 50s, I remember there's always this, this, this kind of dream that by now, by the year 2004, uh, science, modern science, would have conquered all diseases by now because they managed to, you know, do away with smallpox and TB and things like that. So we had this great expectation by this time, back 1950, you know, 50 years later, the cleverness of modern science would be to annihilate disease and maybe old age. Maybe we wouldn't have to get old and even and some people even put that into death conquering death We've got to conquer these these things because we don't like them and we don't want them so this is this is coming from an um, idealistic attitude of you know how uh, wanting perfection 
from conditioned phenomena. Trying to make a utopian world, a perfect society, and, and that is, is a dream, is an ideal. But it's not sensitive, it doesn't feel anything. It's beautiful, it's perfect, but it's not Dhamma, it's not the way things are, it's not the way it is. <clears throat> so the Buddha po is always pointing to the way it is, not to the way it should be, or to to an ideal of perfection, but just noticing, like in Satipatthana, you're going to the very the realities of of experience, the body, the feeling, sensation. You're you're awakening to to just the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling. So this is the awakening, you know, awake, waking up to just observe, uh, knowing that the Buddha, knowing the Dhamma, the Bhutto, the awakened consciousness of an individual, <clears throat> aware of Dhamma the way it is. So the sense realm is, you know, is like this. The ideal realm, and we can create perfection with ideals, but with with the four elements and the changing uh, nature, the anicca dukkanata of conditioned phenomena. You know, we we learn from it, we we observe it, we notice it, we pay attention. So that then we learn, we, we develop wisdom comes from this kind of practice. The way it is. Not all of us can think of how we would like it to be. But a really wise person isn't coming from how, how he or she would like it to be, but from recognizing the way it is. And who is it that knows this? Yeah. You know, the question, who am I? Or what is it that knows? Because they always want to, to define that, find something that knows, rather than being the knowing. You know, so there's, on that level of thought and desire, there's always wanting to define, wanting to, it's always like P 
pinning butterflies to the to the wall, you know. You want to make something permanent, something whose beauty lies in its in its ephemeral nature. We we want to grasp it and then like pin it down, and then it's it's dead. So they say joy comes from from not trying to grasp, but allowing the flow of life and and uh, receiving it. Not trying to get the big good parts you like and, and hold on to them. Because that destroys any joy in life. The grasping tendencies is a joyless experience of life. You know, you, you find your, you know, it destroys destroys the joy of our lives by trying to hold on to it. So this sense of freedom, of, of letting things be as they are, of allowing you know, the pleasure to be pleasure without seeking it, without spending your life always trying to be happy and finding pleasure. The ability to, to uh, recognize and bear with pain and displeasure without creating resentment and aversion in, around it. <clears throat> then going back to neutral, Atuka Matsuka Vedana, so much of it, as you begin to get a sense for awakening, then, and much of our experience is neither pleasure nor painful. Or just being able to see through the senses, you know, the sound of silence is it's kind of neutral. It's neither pleasurable nor painful. Visual space, you know, when you contemplate the space here in the temple through, the, through sight, it's neither pleasurable nor painful. But it's present, isn't it? And if you're looking for pleasure, then you have to, you look at the flowers or the Buddha Rupa or something like that. <clears throat> then you see something you don't like. In the temple, you don't like this. And then you feel pain. But neutral, you're withdrawing your attention from from the extremities to to the to what is doesn't stand out like space itself visual space it doesn't it's it's present it's all around us all the time but we but it doesn't announce itself it's not like absolutely fantastic or absolutely horrible is it it's it's, it's like this so then we're Opening, we open to the reality of space. It's all around us, so it's nothing, you know, so obvious once it's pointed out.
Stillness, reflection, then <coughs> the, the five khandhas, you know, this is uh, these five groups, five categories. They're just convenient ways of, of simplifying things because of the endless details of, of conditioned phenomena. And if we take an interest in all the qualities and details of phenomena, it's, it's uh, you know, we will keep our mind busy our whole lifetime and never get anywhere with it. <clears throat> they call it counting the sand grains in the Ganges River. <clears throat> so last year when I was in Varanasi for two months, and I kept looking at the Ganges River and the and then we we went even further up into Rish, up to the north uh, in Devpayag with the source of the Ganges. And it's all sandy, I think. You know, trying to count all these sand grains. <laughs> you know, where do you you know you start from where you are, but you you know you can't keep track. The human mind isn't built for that kind of knowledge. And do we need to know how many sand grains there are in the river? Is that an important fact to 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 know in your life? Maybe getting your name in the Guinness Book of Records is the best you'll ever you'll never you never you'll never be able to succeed. So trying to you know understand everything, know everything about everything, is a kind of overestimation. It's our desire to to be God, isn't it? God, the concept of God is God knows everything about everything. <clears throat> so then we look at our, we're human beings, you know. We have limitations because of the nature of our bodies, planetary life and so forth. This is the limitation that we're experiencing of being incarnated in human form. So we can't know everything about everything in, in all its uh, infinite details, but we can know the way it is. So the Buddha point uses five khandhas, rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana, as an expedient means, five categories. Five is easy for us, isn't it? We can all count to five. I hope. <laughs> And five is is a you know a manageable number, so so this and these are categories, you know, so that you can you can uh, your condition all condition phenomena fits in these categories. Everything you know, you can you can put into rupa vedana sanya sankara vinyana as experience. So it's simplified. This we can manage. This is within our human range, of, and so it's uh, you know it's a skillful means to be able to to see things as they are without having to know everything about everything. 
So we learn from, from our own experience. You know, each one of us has to learn from the way we are. You know, the way I am, my body, my emotional habits, personality. All this is what I learn from, you know. It's, it's not, you know, if it's what, what, uh, it's the karma, you know, that I learn from this karmic formation the way it is. So the the awakening is to encourage this sense of confidence that no matter what you think of yourself or your calm is all that good or what and if it's not very good or whatever you still it's what you need to learn from you know the way you are the the habits you have the body you have the way it is it's this is the Dhamma you learn from. You don't need to hope to get a better deal the next life, or then, it, then you, you know, you're not really aware of Dhamma anymore. You're just wanting to have better karma in the next life to learn, hopefully, to learn from better karma. You don't need better karma. You've got a, the, the way it is is enough. And also to see the fact that you're here and you're interested in Dhamma. To me, this is, this is the proof of your barami, of your accumulated virtues. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I don't have enough barami. Uh, that's an, I think that's just an excuse. <laughs> because, you know, to me, all of you, if you're interested in Dhamma and, you know, willing to, practice, at least try, you know, that's barmi. That's like accumulated virtues from the past. There's enough for you, for you to, to take, to be interested in the Dhamma. Why isn't, you know, this is, this isn't very many in a country like this. Millions and millions of people drop in the ocean. Because not not most people aren't that interested. Wouldn't you know? Would find a winter's retreat at Amravati unbearable. So this is also a way of of you know not envying others or you know thinking somehow you know the way we can despise ourselves or diminish ourselves because, you know, some people seem to have better karma than others or, I, you know, I don't like, uh, you know, I'm critical of the way I am and, and uh, or envy somebody else. It's like, like it's, it's a sense of this is what I'm learned from, from this body, this mind, this, this being here. This is the Dhamma that I learn from. <clears throat> so that, just reflecting on that gives me, uh, you know, it makes me feel somehow content. You know, I'm, it's, I don't have to try to get anything I don't have or endlessly try to improve the conditions 
you know, but but be able to awaken to them, to to receive them, to learn from them, both the the good the good side and the bad side. It's not, you know, if one has a lot of negativity. No. In one, you know, one has a strong negativity and doubt or aversion or fear and that. These are all important things to learn from. These are not obstructions unless we, you know, when we're just bound to them, then, then they, we are creating the obstruction, not the condition itself. It's an obstruction. So this is, you know, like gratitude, a sense of being grateful for, for what you have, you know, the opportunity to practice hearing the Dhamma, gratitude to the Buddha, to the tradition, all these things, to Pumpocha, to the teachers, the Sangha, gratitude for, to yourself, having a sense of, of you know, appreciation of having an opportunity and having a physical body and, and the way you are, seeing it in terms of, of a good occasion rather than bad luck. <clears throat> so you're, you know, you don't compare yourself with anybody else or ideals anymore, which is, which is, going to be painful, you know, there's a lot of suffering around looking at somebody else and thinking, oh, I wish I was like them. <clears throat> Envy or jealousy or, or you know, when, when we're brought up in competitive systems, you know, we always, you know, our personalities are, are um, created around competition. Now, who can be the best monk or the best nun? Or <laughs> we can bring it into the Sangha. <clears throat> who can give the best Dhamma Desana? Uh, in a way we can even see, you know, in, in, a, in, in this convention, make it into a competition. Remember the early days at Wat Nana Chat, we used to, we used to see who could sit in full lotus the longest. <laughs> Without moving. <laughs> Things like that. This is a very... Western kind of... Male Western 
tendency, like marathons and And then those that couldn't do it and make, you know, feel inferior, not, you know. So that, that way of looking, you know, there's nothing to envy in this life. You know, to, you know, to somebody else, or, you know, to look to them and say, oh, they're, they're much better than I am. And that is, because we learn from the way we are. You know, their karma, my karma, my karma is like this. So when I reflect in this way, it gives me, uh, it makes me feel quite gra- grateful in a way or, or contented with, with the way I am. It doesn't mean I approve or like everything about myself as a person or whatever, but it, it means I'm not, it's okay. You know, I'm, it's, I've got the I've got what is necessary. I've got the five khandhas. Mindfulness. I appreciate the teachings of the Buddha. I heard the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma. I've got everything that's necessary. It's all that, that's necessary. <clears throat> I think, well I want better khandhas than <laughs> than of course. You know that even if you, even if you, you know, like people that have a lot of physical problems, you know, that a lot of physical weakness or pain or <clears throat> disease or whatever, you know, it's still these are not obstructions to enlightenment. So it's learning from them, you know, learning from this sense of karma. It can be kind of fatalistic. My karma is a kind of fatalistic resignation. Or it can be a very positive thing to learn from this. I'm learning from this the way it is, from this disease or this this, uh, weakness or this disability. So in the present moment, the body, the breath, the inhalation, exhalation, obvious, isn't it? Yet when I first started meditation, when I first tried to meditate, I I had trouble using the breath. I had to start with mantra. I found mantra more useful in the beginning because I was such a, a head person, a thinker. So to try to sometimes I could you know, just uh, just the breathing through the through the nostril. Or I started with the rise and fall of the of the abdomen at Wat Mahatat in Bangkok, and contemplate the rise and fall of my abdomen was first quite difficult because I was always thinking up in my head and to sustain any and they really you know it seems so uh, intellectually seems so boring it's 
sit there and try to be with the rising and falling of my abdomen. <laughs> I found a mantra helpful in the beginning because it's thinking, you know, but you're, you're kind of taking like one a word or a couple of words and just thinking them intentionally so it, your mind doesn't wander. You know, so like thinking, a wandering mind is your style. Oh, I've got to pay attention to my abdomen. And one thought goes on to another. And then you think, what's the point of this? It's pretty boring. You know, what are you supposed to learn from just watching, from witnessing the rising, falling of your abdomen? I'm not getting on and on like that. Or then some mind would wander off someplace else. So, so they uh, found the the um, mantra was was good. Puto. Or I used let go. So this made up my own mantra. <coughs> so the letting go, I, I just I remember. First, I just because of the obsessiveness of my thinking mind. You know, I, I deliberately think let go. And then, I, and then I keep it going at a high pitch, you know, because so so there wouldn't be any room for the mind to wander, and to give it a lot of uh, attention. So I, I inwardly think, let go, let go, kind of a very rapid thinking, so that there wouldn't be possibility for another thought to arise, and then think it in a high pitch, you know. If it's too low, it's kind of a screaming let go because the, I was a very obsessed thinker so I found just after a while just practicing with let go the, then I could you know I could slow down and then harmonize let and go with the breath inhalation let exhalation go so it's learning, you know, learning about yourself, what what kind of, uh, you know, the way you are, how to deal with a, a an obsessive, uh, obsessive thinking, wandering mind, and so it's like using a thought is, you know, you know, if you can't stop thinking, then think. You know, but do it in kind of a deliberate way, skillful way, rather than just habitual wandering thought. But then I got this perspective on my, I could see myself thinking. What is it that's aware of, of thinking? You know, because I could think deliberately and I'm aware. I'm creating thoughts. There's an awareness and then there's a thought. Where before, the subject and the thought were totally combined, you know, were one. So I was always my thoughts, you know, always becoming my thoughts. I couldn't differentiate between, 
you know, I am my thoughts, really. I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> but the, uh, and then through, through this letting go practice, I began to, because it was intentional thinking, deliberate thinking, it wasn't random wandering mind. And then it was just two words rather than a connected range of one word to the next, to the next, to the next. So I began to see thought then as, as an object rather than be, be uh, making, making my thinking into the subject. And the subject then isn't thinking. It's aware of thinking. So you're getting to what I call the pure subject or the puto. <clears throat> you know, you, you're, you're recognizing the pure subject before you become a person or become your thinking or your thought. And that, then that buto isn't, you know, it's, it's, you know, you use the word, but you don't attach to the words. They're merely expedient means to recognize the reality. Recognize the, the truth. This is the way it is. This pure subjectivity. Thought arises and ceases. Very obvious. Thought moves about quite quickly. So, you know, then, say, with strong emotions, thought would, comes from that. You know, if you're feeling, like if you're feeling uh, in a bad mood, you wake up and you're feeling really grumpy, and you notice all your thoughts are grumpy. Or you wake up and you're feeling happy and you know everything looks good and all your thoughts are quite positive. Or you wake up and and you feel dread about the day and all the thoughts are will come out like that. <clears throat> so so mood, isn't it? The emotional state uh, affects the thinking process. So then noticing the mood, you know, so if I, if, what kind of mood is it? You know, if I get, start, you know, not, not get so, in, you know, not believe the thinking that comes from that mood, but, or not to suppress the thoughts, but to recognize that this kind of underlying quality of the jitta, the mental state, the jitanupasana, so you you know like if I'm in a feel down, feel bright, feel positive, negative, happy, sad, is like this. And as you then you sustain that, you receive it. You're not trying to 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 get rid of it. It's always this this attitude of accepting something. The meta practice, isn't it? Unconditioned love. It's accepting.
something for what it is, even if you don't like it, you're, I'm willing to accept something I don't like and don't want the way it is. And that, how do you do that? It's not through thinking about it, but through trusting in awareness. And then that's like the, the metta in a, in a very practical way. So the things I don't like, you know, my uh, bad mood or whatever, then once I recognize it, you know, the pure subject, the puto, then is, is re receiving this mood as dhamma. It's the way it is. And of course, moods change. There's nothing permanent about a mood, so, you know, there's nothing to, you don't have to do anything with it, you know, trying to change it, but just receive it. Allow conditioned phenomena. It doesn't mean approving or going along with things, but it's, it's, it's our ability to, to not get caught in just ignorant reactions to things to qualities or conditions. Otherwise, we just react to life. You know, we're just caught in, in our reactions, which are based on, which come from ignorance, from avicca. I noticed in it was a nongkai where I was doing this let go practice, and it was, you know, just experimenting with it. Uh, I was uh, living alone for about a year in this kuti, and when you're forced to live alone with yourself, you know, they bring a, a like a tiffin carrier these of food every day, so I get they bring the meal. And uh, nobody could speak English, so I couldn't, you know, there's not much chance for a chat. I mean, you know. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, I was, you know, just being with yourself all the time with no, no, you know, there's nothing to distract you. So in a sense of hell being no space, I created the first few weeks was like utter hell because I'd never been in such a situation for that long. So it's just, you know, after the kind of bliss, oh, I'm all alone now. That wore out after a few days and suddenly, you know, every oh, kind of negativity started coming up. Anger, repressed anger started surfacing. And, and I was trying to stop it, resist it, you know, trying to, I wanted tranquility. I wanted peace. I'd ordained to have peace. You know, going to the forest, this idea of living in the forest in a little cootie and listening to the rainfall and the sound of the wind and 
writing haikus was very attractive, <laughs> a romantic vision. Instead, it just you know, this, this the all kinds of horrible mental states came up. And, uh, you know, just trying to resist them and push them away was, you couldn't do it. You know, it just was impossible to stop it. So, something in me just decided to just accept it. So, I developed this letting go, this attitude of letting go of it, letting things be what they are. And after a while, you know, I found that work because uh, then one day I woke up and there was, and uh, I was in this state of bliss for about a week. State of, of, you know, unmitigated bliss for about a week. Everything was beautiful. I woke up and instead of being negative and or dull or bored, suddenly everything was was radiant with light and beauty. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and it wasn't that beautiful a place actually. <laughs> I remember going in the in the toilet, which was not beautiful. And it looked it was touched by magic. Everything. Uh, there's nothing I could see that wasn't beautiful. So, so then I'm enlightened, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But then this, and this lasted for, I think, probably about a week or something like that. And then, then I came back to normal. But, uh, but it's like like going from hell to heaven, wasn't it? Suddenly I was all those weeks in hell, no space, just this ongoing obloki of misery and anger and resentment and fear. And then uh, it stopped. And there was just space, beauty, light. I was in heaven. <laughs> and then, then, uh, then it, it kind of settled down to just normal consciousness. Of course, there's a strong desire after that to get heaven again. You know, wanting to have that experience again. So, you know, and I went to stay with Lung Po Cha. I was, I was whole, you know, I was uh, longing to have this experience again. So then I went, there's a story of going to Pupek Mountain up in Sukhumakorn after Vasa with Lung Po Cha. I got permission to go to the place. I thought, I need to go be alone and practice. So I went to this place, um, beautiful mountain, and uh, this is what I wanted, you know, kuti, everything set up, and hoping to have this, repeat this heavenly experience, and and I went into hell again. 
So uh, you know, I could see, you know, just that that this 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 these things happen when the conditions are present. You know, if I if I try to control, willfully make things the way I want, you know, then it, it that's done with memory, wanting something I remember. That heaven experience was spontaneous. It wasn't planned. It wasn't sought after. It just happened. I had no memory ever of having that experience before that. So, so, uh, and then it happened, but then it also was impermanent. So then uh, Lung Po Cha's emphasis on ordinariness, the Tamada, began to see the wisdom of that. Reflecting on the way it is, the human situation, the five khandhas, the way things are. In terms of ordinary experience, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Just ordinary monastic life. Eating your meal, putting on your robes, walking from here to your room. All this is part of awareness, you know, it's ordinary Nothing special, nothing extreme. It's neither heaven nor hell, but it's like this. So the, your, your awakening, if the sound of silence, it's, it's not heaven. It's ordinary. It's the background. So it's, it gives a, a container, a kind of resting place to receive the flow of life in both its, its kind of ordinary experience. Because most of our life, you know, most of our experience is just ordinary. We have few peak moments and hellish moments, heavenly moments and peak moments and and marvelous experiences. But most of our life is like this. It's breathing, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, eating, putting on the robe. Things like that. Just ordinary things. So then, this, then the, then that desire for the extremities. You see it. You know, you, you're no longer seeking to be born in heaven. You're learning to be content and grateful with life as as it is, the way you experience it. So then, this the Buddha. Ray, you know, called nibbana, and then this uh, this sense of, you know, it's it's not it's not high, it's not like a extreme of any of any sort. It's not a condition that's extreme. It's natural. It's real. It's now. And then it's ordinary. Tamada. 